Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the death of the author. I'm not referring to anything that reflects uh, a sense that books as we know them are about to come to an end, or any hostility toward the craft of writing, or any author in particular, except for a pseudonym that I adopted in high school called The Author. In Inappropriate Conversations number 2, one of the two introductory shows, I introduced some of the writings from high school, at least some of the concepts behind those writings, and the pen name I used at the time called The Author. But what I want to do today is flash forward from the early 80s or even late 70s to the middle of 1986 and a point in time when I finished a short story that was written to be an epitaph or an obituary notice for the character, the persona, named the author. As I stop with the introduction here in a minute and just get straight into the short story, because it is a long short story, I'll come back on the other side perhaps with a couple of stories You see, I couldn't have done this early on. One of the things I did after kind of planning out the first dozen or so inappropriate conversations many years ago was take a look in the cabinet I've got of writing materials that never went anywhere, most of which unpublished. This one is actually a rare exception. This short story was published in an abridged form, but most of them were snippets and ideas, and I took a look and I said, you know, what of the short stories that I've written or what of the essays would I like to revisit or would make sense to become a piece and a part of an inappropriate conversation? And anyone who's listened to a lot of these shows knows that I've used a lot of that material. There have been poems that have appeared throughout, the occasional reference to a post-high school reunion essay. This one, though, is going to be both the longest work and a work that couldn't have been shared even a moment sooner. One of the problems is that the story itself, I think, has more power if you know at least a little bit of the backstory. And I won't really provide any popcorn trail or breadcrumbs here as to moments in previous inappropriate conversations where a reference is being made. It's either not clear at all, in which case just follow along the path and cadence of the story itself, or in some cases it will be clear. When the story is over, I'll come back on the other side and talk a little bit about a couple of points, if there's time. One of them will be a particular story about binge drinking while in high school, and I refer to it in the short story because the character, the author, was really from maybe my sophomore year in high school through my freshman year in college. He didn't have that much of a lifespan as far as it goes, but I did give him a proper send-off, a proper eulogy, if you will, including telling some of the, you know, perhaps the ugly stories, binge drinking being one of them. The other one I might describe as, you might, you hear it described as an incubus attack. I'll talk a little bit about it in the story. I'll tell the story behind the story at the end, but it kind of calls to mind one of the clips from Secretly Timid that I shared in Inappropriate Conversations 128, the Proud to Know You episode. It actually used a clip taken from Secretly Timid's raunchy baby-making episode. But, you know, really talking about that sleep paralysis and what that sense of it is, as the story snakes around somewhat randomly, I think you'll see it. 
In this case of this story, all names have been changed to protect the innocent, except, of course, myself. Do you experience bouts of geekdom? If so, Anomaly may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's convention reports, cosplay topics, and commentary on Star Wars, Doctor Who, Star Trek, and other sci-fi fantasy genres provided a feeling of fullness while promoting optimal geekiness. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. Learn more at AnomalyPodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y Podcast.com. Anomaly. Your prescription for geek entertainment. Authorial Intent, a neo-surrealist revising a will from his deathbed. Authorial Intent is a more representative stream of consciousness from later in the 20th century. The author was a critic and an opponent of the notion that a writer's intentions are a guide to assessing his work. In the story, this writer tells about his pseudonym, The Author, who wrote underground stories and essays while attending high school. By exploring the death of that other writer, just before graduation, Greg raises his objection to authorial intent. Why should readers rely on the author to determine truth in a story, when some authors, including this one, intentionally lie within their work? Judge for yourself. I must announce right from the start that this is a true story. To date, all my stories have been labeled true as as if I'm Mr. Nonfiction or something. There is a difference. This one actually is true. Only time will tell if anybody notices. I honestly don't know when or where I was born, and I'm not pretentious enough to claim that I do. I only know what I've been told. It wasn't a good day, at least not for my mother. You see, I weighed ten pounds. I never played in a baseball game that went into extra innings, and I do not know why. More than once, the game ended tied in the bottom of the ninth. On the other hand, I was in a football game that went into double overtime. We won. Tells you something, doesn't it? As you can tell, I'm a writer by trade. I got my start writing comedy purely by accident. For as long as I can remember, people laughed at true stories I told and took quite seriously. After years of people making fun of me, I dedicated my life to making people laugh. I have to confess that I've fallen short of success. My ultimate goal was never achieved. I always wanted to write a short story that was longer than 341 pages. It never worked out because they kept turning into novels. Because of my early triumphs, I never worked much in typical summer jobs. I'm grateful for that because I was a dreadful fast food employee. One summer, I did yard work and mowed three lawns with a weed eater before someone finally told me that it was quicker and easier to use a lawnmower. In my neighborhood, when I was a child, there was a secret passage between the fences of our neighbors' houses. Whenever the kids on the block found insulated electrical wire on the street, we put it in our hiding place. No one ever found it. Animals have always been my friends. Actually, being a friend of mine is no great trick. All you have to do is be honest and sincere. I hated dishonesty, particularly my own, which made signing yearbooks a problem. I didn't care whether they had a nice summer. I just wanted to see them in classes next year. I learned how much I loved plants when I was in elementary school after making a critical mistake. One day, while practicing hitting foul balls with a baseball bat, I got frustrated because 
I was only hitting line drives and grounders. In anger, I swung the bat at the tree in my front yard and wounded it. I cried for hours, afraid it would die. To this day, whenever I call home, I ask how the tree is doing. At a young age, I developed an appreciation for music. I remember the protests and the music of the 1960s, the music without the protests in the 1970s, and the protests over the music in the 1980s. I prefer devil music to hymns, again, a reference to honesty. To counter the influence of music, my parents sent me to Boy Scouts and to church. Religion was more effective than scouting. I never fit in as a Boy Scout because none of the other boys knew the words to the same campfire songs I did. The first year I went to camp, one of our tentmates was a homosexual. He tried to hide it because he thought we would discriminate against him if we knew. He was right. The turning point in my education came in the sixth grade when I finally learned the parts of speech, particularly the preposition. In spite of my initial confusion, everything fell into place when I grasped the permanence of the link between preposition and object. It still reminds me of marriage. On the day I was married, hundreds of people went to cemeteries and mourned the dead. Likewise, on my honeymoon, people, many of the same people, flocked to the cemeteries with flowers and tears and, yes, when I was growing up, people paid good money for the milk they drank. My allergy to milk concerned me deeply. I was afraid women would not be attracted to me if they knew I didn't like it. They might think I was the macho type, I reasoned, so I always drank some and slowly developed a duodenal ulcer. I really didn't drink much when I was young. Even during my reckless stage, I justified all my consumptions. Sure, I'd been accused of drinking entire bottles of gin during a single outing, but I only drank in accordance with the law. In my state, it was illegal to drink with an open bottle anywhere in the car. Police even searched the trunk. So I was forced to either drink the whole thing before driving home or pour the rest out. I believe starving Africans and Asians could use a good strong drink, making it immoral to waste. At the risk of sounding stupid, I will say that the turning point for me mentally happened at a party. I remember blacking out. How could you forget an experience like that? When I regained consciousness, an unattractive blonde was standing over me. I asked what happened, and she told me she was flattered and walked away. God has tried to communicate to me several times in my life, but never with total success. I would not hazard to guess why, but the failure is likely due to his lack of sincerity or my lack of honesty, but we've already been through all that. Really, I do not go to church to listen to the preacher, because the facial expressions make all the difference to me. Obviously, my religious experiences were not in church, with one exception. Once in the chapel of a free will Baptist church, when I was all alone and praying for the health of a friend, Jesus told me to witness. I was confused for weeks because I hadn't seen any crime. Never fear, he told me later. I was shaving and arguing with the Lord. It's okay. All the Old Testament types bickered with God, and if I'm anything at all, I'm an Old Testament type. The Lord said he would reveal the crime to me so I could witness if I would go to school early that day and listen to the school chorus practice from outside in the courtyard. I could barely hear them from the courtyard. The agnostics politely tell me they think I'm lying. They say, we are not sure. We are still seeking. Jesus told me what the crime was, and for the rest of my life I have cut myself every time I shave. The crime? 
not loving yourself enough to care at all about your neighbors. It seems we have all loved our neighbors exactly as much as we love ourselves, explaining suicide and murder within the same easy-to-learn formula. I bring this up as part of the discussion about drinking and blacking out. You see, Jesus wanted me to change my testimony, but twice he tried to take a deposition during my blackouts. The damage was already done on the third occasion. At dawn, with my head swollen from a hangover, I really felt like I betrayed him. For that reason and others, I never drank much during the summer I went to college. I spent my nights counting sheep and reading inspiring tales about members of the British Parliament. Both religion and alcohol taught me a lot about friendship. The chord struck clearly for the first time after a keg party with my first high school sweetheart. That night, I woke up from a wet dream and realized I had no legitimate sexual desires for the girl. When we broke up the next week, I told her we should be friends, and we never really spoke to one another again. The girl went away. The dreams didn't. Until I learned how to keep friendship sacred, sex was always intimidating. In elementary school, the boys used to hide in the bushes and play army. Once, when a comrade and I were going AWOL, we saw what happened between Albert and Gail. I really liked Gail because she was a sixth grader and she wore a bra. Albert was the only Negro in the school. He pulled her bra strap when they were returning a kickball. She screamed, and there was a big scandal, but Greg and I never told, and nobody ever knew we were there. It was just too shocking, mysterious, frightening. Albert paid for his crime in junior high school. He was one of the kids arrested for treason because he couldn't properly punctuate the Pledge of Allegiance. I set the record high score on that punctuation test by using rules the other students didn't know. For years, I felt guilty about not supporting Gail that afternoon. After all, she wore a bra. To a fifth grader, that made her special, but not as special as she seemed in high school when I first saw her braless. Usually I don't tell that story. Even after I learned to keep friendship sacred, I didn't like it when girls told me about their sexual encounters. I knew I couldn't top their stories without lying. It would be easy to say that friends are supposed to listen to each other, but mine never really listened to me when it mattered. They didn't care when I told them the world was round. They didn't even act surprised. They laughed when I said God didn't know what time it was. If he was prompt, I told them, the world would have ended long ago. Every time I insisted that I loved them, they reacted as if they didn't think the words had meaning or power. I'll give you power. Love has put more people in both churches and asylums than any force mankind does not fully understand. By harnessing that power, I could bring the world to its knees. Or its hands and knees. My sister always marked her calendar when we were growing up. She said it had something to do with dating. I'll always remember one of my old flames as a vampire. Not because she bit me, but because she never had a reflection. Her voice wouldn't even record on cassette one Christmas when we taped some duets for my grandmother. I liked her anyway. Once, parking together after a night at the drive-in watching skin flicks, she gave me that look of passion. We stopped kissing, and she slipped off one of her shoes slowly pulling down a sock to reveal her beautifully pale foot in the moonlight, she placed it on my lap. She said she appreciated the fact that I hadn't tried to rush her with peer pressure and asked if I wanted to suck on her toes. She didn't have to ask twice. 
When she broke up with me after the holidays, I realized she would have made a good child molester if I had only been a few years younger. I cried that night and refused to wipe the tears away. As a child, I believed that dry tears would permanently stain my face. I was bitter, so my best friend told her I killed myself. She called my house in a panic from school that day, and I calmly told her that I missed classes because I was at the dermatologist's office getting the stains from the tear tracks removed from my cheeks. It would be easy to say that friends are supposed to tell each other their problems, but verbal communication is a lost art. My friends always let me know by taking drugs, flunking classes, or just hating me. But none of them ever wrote a suicide note. The only time in my life I ever really feared death was as a child. At night, between my father's snores, I would hear the burglar. He always broke into the house so quietly that I never knew how long he had been inside. But eventually I would hear his footsteps coming down the hall. He looked into my brother's room. But he never saw the stereo. Surely he would have taken it if he did. He entered my sister's room, where he spent what seemed to be hours looking for jewelry. Again, he never found any. As he slowly stepped toward my room, I wondered if he would kill me because he wasn't finding any valuables. I tried to lie still and breathe normally, pretending not to be awake. I was convinced he would kill me if he knew I was a witness. Sometimes the burglar would stay for hours. He was suspicious of my irregular breathing. He could see me squinting my eyes to keep them closed. He observed the way my whitened knuckles clutched at my covers. Not wanting to murder me unless he was certain I was a witness, the burglar walked around and around my bed, checking to see if I was asleep. I tried to ignore the carpeted footsteps as I faked a natural rollover. The only reason I'm alive today is my ability to play dead. Every morning I'd wake up and check for missing valuables. At one point I decided he wasn't a very good thief, only to realize that he might not be a thief at all. Maybe he was a psychopathic killer who only came to torment and murder me. Wasn't much of a killer, either. The nightmare changed when I got older. Once I woke up in a bar, dancing with a fat girl. I was terrified because I just wanted to talk with her, but she couldn't hear me over the music on the dance floor. Do you come here often? I asked. Normally I don't take strangers back to my apartment, but I'll make an exception for you, she yelled over the music. No, what I said was, do you come here very much? That all depends on you, but I'm game if you are. That's not what I said, I yelled. There's nothing wrong with my bed, she replied with an indignant tone. The box springs are almost brand new and the sheets are clean. I'm sorry, I said, shaking my head and giving up. Don't say that now, she told me. Tell me in the middle of the night when you decide you have to go. There were never any monsters under my bed because my mattress rested flat on the floor. However, there were ghosts in my closet. Many of them are still there, as a matter of fact. They jump out and scare me when I'm throwing on a raincoat on my way to work. Sometimes they hide in my handkerchief pocket and frighten me all day long. So I believe in ghosts and I believe in God, just like I believe in both love and hate. Although I must confess I sometimes cannot tell which is which. One of the defense witnesses said, We all learn to love our neighbors. <laughs> sure, my neighbor doesn't even love himself. He's attempted suicide twice and didn't care enough about what he was doing to succeed. No kidding. I think God hides under my bed at night. 
Somebody feeds my sheep. I just count them. In church, I learned that God watches over me. Well, we all get the feeling from time to time that we are being watched. On occasion, I could even see the judge's cards. 6.5, 7.1, 6.9, 3.3. Norma told me that she became an atheist because Jesus was a man. She said God set the women's movement back 2,000 years by not begetting a daughter instead of a son. I thought the movement didn't exist back then, but I told her I believe men and women are equal. Norma said she was better than I was. It would be easy to say that friends are supposed to comfort each other. True, my cats, fish, and newts were always a comfort, but people... Demanded too much or not enough. After all, I couldn't comfort Julie on the day I made her cry. And when I first found out I was dying, Teresa couldn't have comforted me if she tried. Ironically, she didn't try. In my adolescent years, I was attracted to girls who wore braces. It added something to their smiles. However, when I got braces, I learned what a handicap it could be. For two years, I didn't kiss anybody. Once at a party, the pain grew so bad, even with the beer to disguise it, I couldn't do my comic routine. Everybody felt sorry for me, and we laughed about my teeth. That night, my family called the police because they wanted to get me arrested for driving under the influence. I showed them. When the cop pulled me over, I was only driving while impaired. Most of my friends stopped visiting me when the condition prevented me from telling jokes. But this is not the first time my humor has gone sour. During one spring break at San Antonio, Texas, my roommate gave me a double dose of antihistamine while we were out drinking because I didn't abuse drugs and he wanted to see how a straight person responded. I became severely depressed and tried to find a place where I could be alone. Unaware of what had been done to me, I took an elevator to the top of the Hemisphere Tower and considered jumping off. I chose a place on the ground where I hoped to land, but I called it off because I wasn't adept at climbing fences and I feared people would laugh at me if I fell trying to climb over the security fence. For about a year after that night, I didn't tell a single funny joke. Also, my first experience with drug abuse led me down the path to the hard stuff. Before long, I was smoking tea leaves and garden mint for that pure menthol flavor. I kicked the habit shortly after meeting the woman I later married. Love conquers all things. From time to time, my jokes would slip from funny to weird, because I never really knew what made people laugh. I held my audience in low esteem, because I learned some of the most popular jokes in sixth grade. For example, Pete and Repeat were sitting on this wall. Pete fell off... Wait, wait, I can't tell that one. I always forget how it ends. Um, Julie never liked my jokes. We stayed close over the years. I sent her a card every Christmas, even though she didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. A true friend. She was with me to the end. Julie was fascinated because she had never seen anybody die before, not even her cousin, who was eaten by cannibals. Like Julie, my wife stuck with me when others wouldn't. Even after I asked her to go away so she wouldn't have to watch the deterioration, she was very supportive. She did flush my fish and feed the newts to the cats, but I know she had her reasons. She touched my soul deeply the night I realized I was dying. When I rolled over to tell her my discovery... She asked if it was because of something she had done, as though my death would be her fault. Likewise, after receiving my letter, all my friends seemed to think they were responsible. It was selfish of them. My wife always asked why. 
Teresa asked why, too, but my wife really wanted an answer. It's funny. After dying for a few weeks, why doesn't seem so special? I never thought too much about it. On the bus trip to California a few months ago, Teresa saved a seat for me because she didn't want to talk to me at all during the entire trip and thought the effect would be greater if we sat together. I carried on my end of the conversation in spite of her. Sure, I wondered why some of my friends disappeared when the laughs stopped. I figured some of them were joking about my fate. It was so bad that even the press conference was treated like a stand-up routine. I was more than halfway through my prepared statement before the chuckles and catcalls stopped. Couldn't they see I was dying up there? There was one question I couldn't answer. I still wonder why I was arrested for driving through an empty crosswalk across the street from school one night. I almost got run down three times on my way to school, but no police officers were there to protect me. They were too busy setting up roadblocks to stop drunk driving. One time I was actually hit by a driver who saw me in the crosswalk at the last moment and swerved but in the wrong direction. He got out, looked at his car, and then started telling me that I would have to pay for the dent. I told him insurance couldn't possibly cover the damage that had been done to his brain if he was serious. He asked me if I thought I was a comedian. And no insult there. The most persistent question, am I afraid to go? No. In fact, I relish the thought that my books will be re-released after I die and sell better than ever before. The money might convince my wife to enjoy the stories I wrote. She once told me she hated my books because she wasn't in them. She wouldn't have liked it if the jokes were on her. I've no regrets. There is something nice about knowing that somewhere in the world, during the minute I die, somebody will say, every minute X number of people in the world die. I will be one of them. You see, I haven't been part of an X number since birth. Why fight it? I haven't fought much since the time I was assaulted by two Jews who objected to the jokes I was telling in a bar one night. I think they believed I was making fun of them. I never had been much of a fighter. Once in junior high school, I was picked to fight a guy who was insulting my friends. I didn't bear any grudge, though. I had no incentive to fight. I tried to psych myself up by convincing myself that he'd killed my dog. Consequently, I was so upset, I let my friends down and rushed home to see if Grover was all right. My temper protected me. Julie's first steady boyfriend was jealous of our friendship and threatened to kill me when she broke up with him. He thought she broke up over me. I told him he didn't understand friendship. He insisted on fighting and called me a coward when I declined. I began thrusting my head up against the wall outside school until blood had stained my shirt and I'd torn all the skin off the left side of my face. I think he decided he was better off not dating a girl who was a friend of mine. The saddest experience was when I finally came to terms with Teresa, my prodigal friend. We decided to settle our differences by engaging in a borderline sexual experience, transforming our relationship into something less than friendship. We said a weekend, but my condition was so bad at the time that I blacked out for three days. I haven't seen her since. Not only do I wonder what I missed with her, I wonder what messages Jesus left me while I was out. Sometimes it seemed like he only wanted to talk to me when I was unconscious, but I never had a more helpful friend. Jesus taught me how to handle peer pressure, why I can see the future, and what friends are for. Someone asked me yesterday if I wanted to confess my sins. I just stared at the creep. I've been confessing my sins all my life, Father, every step of the way. 
God can redeem me by granting me absolution for my books. However, I did admit one moral transgression. I once cut 78 pages out of a book just to enter a writing contest for books that were 250 pages or less. It seemed wrong to do that just for money, but it was so simple. I just, I just cut out all the plagiarism. As far as last words go, I have several editions of last words totaling 341 pages and more. Anyway, nobody really knows what to say about death. When my brother was killed by a hit-and-run driver, the rest of my family was more angry than sad. They wanted to know who did it. They wanted their day in court. They wanted to see him behind bars. All I knew is that I didn't want to see my brother in the ground, and I didn't care why he was being buried. Maybe on my second honeymoon, I'll mourn the dead. I spent weeks, maybe even months, trying to come up with a meaningful last request. Nothing really struck me. Finally, I, I asked that my coffin be sealed without nails. Use glue or tape, I told them. Nails are an instrument of the devil because they were used to crucify Jesus. Alone with only Julie now, I'm feeling less rejected, but more betrayed. I shouldn't spend my time trying to guess who will cry at my funeral and who won't, but I'm baffled that I will never know the answers to those questions, and I could see the future. Well, enough about me. The author, age 17, died Tuesday from injuries received in a battle of wits, services pending. Aren't you going to ask me what I meant by that? Hi everybody, Rich here. You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word. Okay, so a short story called Authorial Intent, written by someone who claims that it's full of lies, and yet I think anybody who's listened carefully to inappropriate conversations would already know that there's a significant amount of truths to be found there. So it's this interesting combination of truth with exaggeration, truth with uh, mixing and combining different people into one to conceal identity or to represent common ideas and sort of a synergy of approaches. But there are a couple of true stories that I'll delve into just in the after effect of listening to this again and hearing the story really for the first time, because this wasn't a short story unlike some poetry that tends to be read aloud. Its length alone kind of precludes that, and even when it was published back in 86 or so, it was abridged to fit into the format of that news magazine. But... I mentioned there a little bit of a section on sleep paralysis, which I didn't realize that's what sleep paralysis was. I'd heard the term before and thought it was probably something completely different. But when it was described on the Secretly Timid show a few years ago, I heard that and I immediately thought, that's what would happen to me in elementary school. I remember it happening in fourth grade when I was first playing football and having that sense of anxiety on a Friday night before the first couple games of the season. And yet, it's exactly that sense that you were, you're were 100% convinced that somebody is in the room with you. Whoever that person is in the room is not meaning to do you well. You can't be 100% sure the individual is trying to do you harm, but you, you don't feel like you're in the presence of somebody who cares about you in any way. And I can remember trying to fake like I was asleep good enough. And if you spend 
four or five hours over the course of a night actively trying to pretend to be asleep, you don't go back to sleep in that situation. And I can remember playing the first couple of football games of my very short-lived flag football career uh, being dead tired because I didn't get a wink of sleep the night before because somewhere after the first hour or two, I was awakened by this experience of someone being in the house, someone being in the room, literally thinking I could hear feet on carpet. And who knows? I As I grew up later, I told myself, yeah, maybe my parents were awake on a Friday night thinking the kids were asleep, you know, doing whatever parents do when they think the kids are asleep, and tiptoeing up and down the hall to maybe get something to drink or whatnot. Uh, it's possible that the sounds I was hearing were my parents, and if so, I'm relatively glad I still didn't open my eyes and catch a glimpse of what was going on. It might have been just as scary as what my mind was imagining. But it wasn't until I listened to Secretly Timid talking about it and John describing his experience on that show that I realized that, yes, this concept that he referred to as an incubus attack, um, I've been there. I've walked in those shoes. And at a young enough age that it can't be blamed on alcohol or anything else. The other story I want to pull out of authorial intent and talk about a little bit is related to alcohol. I did go on a long bus trip that left my high school at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, one Thursday, I think it was. And you know, we took the bus all the way down to Houston, Texas, from almost the Kansas border, and worked our way back, touring and, and looking at some sites and interacting with some schools. We were going down there to perform as both sort of a, an accompanying band, a drum, bass, guitar, piano, and a concert chorus. But I, I don't recall much in terms of performing. I, I recall more of it being a sightseeing trip as it actually played out. And there was a person there with whom I'd fallen out. We'd had a disagreement of sorts. We were no longer on the same page with each other, and I'm not even sure we were really in the same book. But I do remember sitting close by where she was, either across to her or next to her, in one of those buses where you have like a card table where four people can sit, two across from each other facing each other. And she was so angry with me for whatever reason that for large chunks of the trip, she chose not to speak to me at all, which was awkward because we were sitting together during that those large chunks of time. But at one point, there was a decision made to bury the hatchet. And I know a little bit, in retrospect, I know a little bit about what went down. That very first night, um, somewhere in in Houston, Texas, maybe Galveston was the first night, trying to remember, we were in a room with me, two of my friends who were seniors, and the fourth person who made up this four people in a hotel room was a freshman. So you have three and a half years age difference between us. And it was okay that he was with us because he was the younger brother of another friend of ours. So in some ways we all knew each other, but there was this interesting gap between senior and freshman. And this, the freshman had a lot of questions, and a lot of his questions were about girls, and despite the fact that I was in a happy, stable relationship with a girl who went to a different high school, I answered his questions honestly because his questions weren't about... It's that line between somebody asking you what you would do and asking you what you will do. If you ask me, will I do something with this girl that's in our class and on this bus trip, well, the answer is obviously no. I'm in a stable relationship. I'm happy. But hypothetically... You roll up after a shipwreck on the shore of a deserted island, and the only other person on the island is one of the women he was asking us about? Yeah, you can answer the question that way. That's very much a would-you question. And me and both my roommates answered a fair number of those questions, and I think that he went and 
found his way to the girls' room the very next day and shared a lot of the information that, frankly, should have stayed in the locker room. And that made for a very uncomfortable dynamic, especially when I had no idea. Uh, I That trip ended and months went by before I actually had anybody clue me in that somebody had done some talking. But even then, I didn't know who'd done some talking. It was a very strange thing because I was answering these questions so casually, as were the other young, young men, that I couldn't have recalled any specific thing or example I'd given to him based on what he might have asked. I thought I was just helping out a friend or helping out the little brother of a friend. But, you know, it played out that on the last day of that trip, so at the very end of our trip, one of the girls that I'd known for years thought of as being a friend showed up in our room that last night and climbed into my side of my bed. Now, we were still a full room of four people. Those other three guys weren't going anywhere, and I didn't want them to. And I didn't know whether she climbed into the bed that I was in and the spot of the bed that was mine because she was sending a signal that she wanted to be where I was or that she wanted to be next to Kelly and wish the rest of us would leave her alone with him. I never got the answer to that question. But later, years later, when I put the pieces together and said, hey, you know what? The little brother blabbed. I probably said very nice things about my friend. Why wouldn't you? And that somehow translated into a post-curfew visit to the hotel room. It, it was. It paints the story in a very different way. And ways that I interacted with that classmate in college, because there were a couple of years we overlapped in college, well, I don't know. Would, would I have been much more standoffish or much more stand-forward-ish, if that's a term or a concept, if I understood the dynamic of what happened on the last day of that trip in my senior year. I don't think so. Again, I was in a stable relationship. I was very happy, but it's an interesting dynamic. What happened in between the first day, where I answered questions I probably shouldn't have, and the last day, when Julie, let's call her Julie, surprised me with her behavior, at least in retrospect surprised me, was that this other young woman who was angry with me for whatever reason, some of the reasons I know, some of them I probably don't know, was that she decided that I think she wanted to get to the bottom of some of this stuff and was aware, because we talk, we, we knew each other, that even though I was an underage drinker and a very accomplished and experienced underage drinker, the one thing I did not drink and did not want to drink and did not enjoy the concept of even drinking was tequila. Now, you're in South Texas, not drinking tequila if you're a drinker, probably stands out as a little bit strange. But they went on a trip to the liquor store, and I said, well, you know, what I enjoy if we're going to go on a trip to the liquor store, if we're going to make a clandestine journey underneath the noses of our chaperones and the choir director and, and other you know people from the band, if you're going to do that, then I wanted gin. And I didn't just want any gin. I wanted good gin. I wanted Tanqueray, and I had the money to back that up. So what I asked for was Tanqueray, Sprite, and Lime. And what she came back with was Tanqueray, Sprite, lime, lemons, salt, and tequila. And the party that night was at her place. Now, I don't know why I know this, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everything I supposed might occur, maybe the possible world that I'd become aware of was a false possibility, and not the true possibility, not the inevitable future. But somehow, in my, you know, 17-year-old mind, I convinced myself that something very bad was going to happen, something potentially embarrassing, something threatening to my primary relationship, something that might be uh, a humiliating prank that I would have to overcome at the end of high school if I went to that party. Now first, 
on a school trip? Was it going to be a difficult thing or a big deal to go to this party in the girls' room? No. They put us up on the second floor of a hotel. May have been coincidence, may have been the hotel's choice. Or perhaps the chaperones thought that with all of us being on the second floor, we would be safe and secure for the night. For all I knew, they put tape outside the doors so that they could tell if we'd gone out and come back in. That's a trick that you used to see in the 60s and 70s, and even though this was the very early 80s, it wouldn't have been that, wouldn't have been that far-fetched to think that that might still be going on. But because we were on the second floor of a hotel where every room had balconies, it was no great trick to hop the balconies and get from one room to the next. It was just a matter of waiting until 11 o'clock or so and being certain that the chaperones were asleep. So here I am, already in a socially awkward situation, because I've got people on this bus trip who were, if they weren't angry with me before the trip started, some were angry with me later because of things that I'd said, and frankly, complimentary things that I said. Hard to fathom exactly the rights and wrongs of all that. There's nothing I said that was critical or mean-spirited. I'd said very nice things, in fact, probably too nice of things, truth be known. But the, for whatever reason, the girls still wanted me and everyone else in my room to join them at a party in their room. These also were adjoining room situations, so you knew there was going to be a fairly big crowd. But I just had a feeling that if I got some sodium pentothal negative into my system, whether that's in the form of tequila or something else, that it wasn't going to go well. That it was either my inhibitions were going to be dropped, I wasn't too worried about that. Or I might find myself out of control of my faculties, and I just didn't want to be taken advantage of. And I realized that there was no really graceful way to exit this situation as a high school senior a couple of months before graduation and still be on good terms with everybody. There was no way to shun them and come out on top. And I got this crazy notion. Uh, don't try this at home. I don't recommend it. But I got this crazy notion that if I passed out completely... No one could hold me accountable for not going to the other party. And that if I had too much alcohol already, adding tequila to the mix would be foolish at best, dangerous at worst. So we were in an adjoining room. So there's at least six guys plus me. So maybe seven guys plus me in, in this room with two suites, four guys each. And as soon as the last chaperone visit came and went, we brought out the hidden bottle of Tanqueray, the Sprite, and the lime juice. And I basically told the guys in the room, A, I don't intend to go to this party. B, I'm going to have a really good excuse for why. And C, that involves us finishing this entire bottle of Tanqueray in the next 25 minutes. And everybody is drinking on me tonight. Everybody's getting a drink who wants one, but for every drink I pour, I'm going to make and drink another one of my own. So by the time everyone's had one round, I've had six or seven. And by the time everyone's had two rounds, I've had 13 or 14. And that's exactly what I did. Slamming down drinks just as fast as I could mix them. Trusting that the Sprite was still cold enough from the, from the trip from the refrigerated section of, of that store that they purchased it from to make it work. Knowing that I wouldn't care. Because after the first two or three, it really wouldn't have mattered. It didn't matter how strong the gin to Sprite mix was, and it didn't really matter if the drink itself was warm or cold. We certainly didn't want to run out of ice and head back to the hallway for more. But the thing with progressive drinking is I had a friend who told me once, he actually is the same friend who performed the song Is It Okay If I Call You Mine from the Fame soundtrack at a talent show the year before. So somebody I, I come to know pretty well, and he told me, he said, you know, the thing with like a, a gin and tonic 
or a Tom Collins type approaches, that with gin, you can make each one of the drinks progressively harder with more alcohol in each one of them. And if you go up to the seventh or eighth one of those drinks, you actually could pour yourself a straight gin on ice with no Sprite and no lime or no tonic water or no nothing, just straight gin. And it will taste to you just like the drinks you had before. It's just the nature of gin. Whereas tequila, as far as I can tell from watching, because I, really I really haven't had too much of it in my life, and part of it is this trip, this story. But that's always going to be harsh. No matter how many you have, you're always going to have to deal with the harsh combinations of flavor and the strength of the alcohol. So here I am pouring gin drinks and drinking them like a crazy person and knowing that at any minute, one of the roommates from the girls' rooms is going to pop over the balcony and tell us it's time to go. And we're going to make a clandestine trip over the rails to the girls' room for probably the rest of the night. Knowing that this was imminent and knowing that I had not yet reached a state of unconsciousness, I looked and there was still maybe a 25% or at least 20% of that bottle of gin that's still sitting in the bottle. And so I decided that really I had no choice at this point. I knew that, that at the pace I was going, I wasn't going to be able to achieve the desired goal. So I drank the rest of the bottle straight. Straight as if it was water and I'd just gotten done mowing three lawns without a bottle of water and was thirsty for it. And no sooner had I finished the last drop, dropped the bottle, stumbled over toward what was my side of the bed, or what that night proved to be my side of the bed, and collapsed. The last thing I remember wasn't just one of the women from the girls' room. It was this exact person had come over to personally escort us to the party and whatever else she had planned. She said, is everybody ready? And the last thing I remember before losing consciousness was my best friend saying, Greg's not. I heard Greg's not. I didn't get a chance to look at the look on her face, but I was dead. I was done. Unconscious, and the hardest thing was the next day our plan was to go to Astro World in a, an amusement park, a Six Flags type amusement park in the Houston area or the San Antonio area, somewhere in there. I think it was the Houston area. And ride the roller coasters the next day. That was perhaps the longest day I've ever experienced in an amusement park before. But I've got to believe, because the story doesn't work if I tell it any other way, I've got to believe that I'm better off having drunk conspicuous amounts of gin that day than I would have been had I just gone to the party and played along. I'm the guy who didn't know the first thing about what to do with Julie showing up in the hotel room three days later and putting herself underneath the sheets on my side of the bed. I certainly wouldn't have known what to do three days earlier in a much more crowded environment. So the story sticks with me, and I decide that if I'm going to live with that really poor piece of decision-making that could have ended tragically, I kind of need to decide what parts of my own personal history, or in this case, in a relationship with somebody that I care deeply about as a friend, two people in fact, a part of my sacred history, what part of that do I own and carry with me as Greg for the rest of my days? And what part of that do I say really and truly belongs to the author? And in the case of this short story, ought to be buried with him.
there's something about the neo-surrealist approach to short story writing that I've always used that's admittedly circular. I'm telling something where the subtext of the story, called out in the title almost always, is the truth, is the anchor, it's what really is happening. And everything else sort of swirls around it to where maybe you can't tell if you didn't read the subtitle what the story was about, but by the end it's kind of obvious. Or maybe sometimes it's only obvious if you know what the title of the work is. But when I think of the circularity of paintings in particular, just looking at paintings rather than prose, the artist that comes to mind is the Dutch painter M.C. Escher. In the Wikipedia article, Escher is described as being a Dutch graphic artist known for his mathematically inspired woodcuts, lithographs, and mezzotents. These feature impossible constructions, explorations of infinity, architecture, and tessellations. He is one of the most interesting, and in the minds of some people perhaps more tedious, artists out there. I'm going to side squarely on the interesting side. I shared on both Twitter, where I can be seen at, at IC underscore Greg, and on the Inappropriate Conversations page on Facebook, which is listed as a cause on Facebook, the, the painting or the drawing by him called Reptiles. I actually have a copy of this somewhere. It dawned on me when I was about to name Escher as a different drummer that right now I don't know exactly which closet in my home is holding this painting, which is a painting perpetually of reptiles, some lizard, crocodile sort of mix, crawling out of a painting over a book, over a cube, over a container of various um, mints and tobaccos, and back onto the page, as if the graphic art was springing to life in a metamorphosis and then springing back into the permanent point on the on the page. This is very typical of Escher, and if you wanted to look at the image, I've shared it online so that you can get a sense of what I'm talking about. It's also very common to what he's done with um, architecture in terms of some of the drawings where you're looking at an image where the building that he's presented couldn't possibly stand. It doesn't seem to have the structural integrity that you'd want if he were an architect. It just simply wouldn't work. But he creates these designs where it's almost impossible to tell what's the first floor, what's the upper floor, and what's the basement, depending on what angle you look at the painting or the drawing from, or how long you spend looking at the drawing. I'm calling Escher out for this particular period in his life as an artist. The reptiles image comes from 1943. It's a lithograph from 1943. When you consider that some of his earliest works dates to 1920, and his later works showing up in 1969, among them something called Snakes, which would appear at the end. And once again, him working with reptiles in these impossible constructions. The one actually called Reptiles appears kind of smack dab in the middle of that career. I've never been in a situation where I've gone to a gallery and been able to see Escher's work in person. Having experienced that surprise of what it means to see the art face-to-face with Salvador Dali, I'm convinced that something about Escher's work would even be more profound if I were able to catch many examples of it at the same time in a gallery, um, where there was a display that had brought many of them together for comparison and contrast. I just have a sense that in person, there would be even another level to the depth of the work, whether it be wood engraving, where the depth is perhaps obvious, or lithograph. It's enough to say that if I draw inspiration when I'm thinking in terms of surrealism or neo-surrealism, 
among the places where I do take that inspiration is visual art. Movies is an obvious example. Luis Benuel is a different drummer, one of the most important directors uh, in my life as a filmgoer. Salvador Dali, another one. Francis Picabi, I've mentioned, is another artist. I'm adding Escher to that list of people who are famous artists, but famous artists perhaps for an audience with an acquired taste. I certainly would understand someone who found the drawings from Escher and the lithographs tedious and annoying. I just have a completely different perspective. Or, you'll have to take my word for it. As I mentioned, you can find Inappropriate Conversations on Facebook and on Twitter. The website at www.inappropriateconversations.org has show notes with comments enabled. Inappropriate Conversations is also on Stitcher. Stitcher Stitcher.com is your access point, if you're not using an app on iOS or Android, to get Stitcher and begin listening to podcast news and other programming on the go. Thanks for listening.